welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today, I would like to talk, while I've been reading and following the news of the uh, James Webb Space Telescope that NASA launched on Christmas Day, and evidently it's in progress of unfolding and kind of putting itself together up there and so i was just looking at nasa's website has got um quite an extensive website for the whole project it's i recommend checking it out it's really cool and evidently this thing is going to be able to see like quote-unquote back into time like hundreds of millions of years or billions of years or something like that. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure this out. But um, it'll be able to sense light that is around it that is essentially um, uh, has been traveling through space since the beginning of, near the beginning of the universe itself, if I'm following this correctly. So it just seems really cool. And uh, the one reason why I thought I'd talk about it in terms of, like, with my color theory project is that it just made me think, looking at all this stuff, about how a lot of the history that I've talked about on this podcast, like going back to Newton and stuff like that, a lot of the early um, reasons why people were studying how light interacted and refracted into the rainbow and stuff like that was because their end goal was to make lenses that they could then build better telescopes with so that they could see it further out into space. And uh, this, uh, well, like, for instance, going back to Newton, his book Optics, which was published in 1703, I believe, the first copy, uh, he describes his experiments with the refraction of light and making his studio into a camera obscura so that he could focus the light through the prism, and it broke up, and, and he saw the rainbow and all that. But the, re- but the rest of the book is about build- making lenses and building telescopes. Like, like the part about the visible spectrum is just like part two of the book or something, I want to say. Um, the other couple hundred pages is all about um, uh, building telescopes. So, uh, yeah, really, really fascinating. You know, so, so basically I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of how we've come in the visual art world to understand how colors work together and behave in the nature of light we've been the beneficiary you know of of like these other fields searching to be able to do something else like build a telescope that is more powerful 
or um, uh, yeah, and uh, or like chemistry in terms of trying to figure out how to dye clothes or fabrics led to all of these innovations in the production of color and the types of colors that are available to us these days in tubes and and various um, forms that they exist in inks and dyes and stuff like that so yeah and then there's this inter this interesting guy so newton is kind of commonly in my experience credited with kind of being the first to refract light and make this prism that he describes in optics but there's this other guy Ibn al-Hatham who was an Egyptian physicist and astronomer he did the same thing in 1015 so I think close to 700 years before Newton like 600 and let's see I did it's 688 years before Newton did any of his experiments, um, Ibn al-Hatham did the same thing, and he wrote a book called Kitab al-Man-Azar, otherwise called The Book of Optics. <laughs> so, I don't, I don't, uh, anyway. So, it's pretty much the same name as Newton's book. Um... But yeah, this 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 person seemed to be quite the the guy. He he rejected um, a lot of the theories on color vision that came before him, and and basically, um, is from what I understand, he ascertained that light comes into the eye through the lens, and he dissected the eyes and has uh, charts. I've seen drawings that he's made of the eye's relation to the brain and the optic nerve and um, and all of these relations so and he wrote a lot about um, astronomy as well and his theories so yeah really fascinating another way another way I see all of this relating to how we approach things if we're like drawing representationally or creating depth within the picture plane i suppose it doesn't always have to be totally representational but the idea of things some things being further away and receding and advancing on the picture plane which i talked about the idea of chromostereopsis in a former podcast about how different colors will 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 be perceived to be in front or behind each other due to the where they focus on the retina or near the retina in our eyes so that's part of the phenomena that explains why reds seem to advance on the picture plane and blues recede now a guy named Filippo Brunelleschi who is an Italian lived from 1377 to 46 is credited with the invention of what we call linear perspective in 1413 and kind of going back to this Hubble or not a Hubble but the um, the the Webb Space Telescope Brunelleschi Brunelleschi Leschi uh, anyway um, 
this guy, he, he basically figured out, he, he described linear perspective in terms of, well, like, you know, in a very straightforward way, it's like the railroad tracks, you know, it's how parallel lines appear to converge on the horizon. And so they feel, it seems like they're going away from us, right? So that's the basics, I guess, and uh, of like a one-point perspective, let's say. And so, but what Brunelleschi figured out was that uh, the, lens, the lens of the eye refracts light from the environment, uh, changing the light wave's directions and focuses, focuses those wavelengths on the fovea of the retina. So since this light is coming in through a circle and focusing and becoming more narrow, what he attempted to describe was a relationship between our peripheral vision and the part of our vision that is in focus. And so he referred to that as a circular shape, like a 360-degree circular-shaped cone of vision. So the light coming in through our pupil forms a cone going towards our retinas as it focuses. Therefore, that cone of vision, if you turn it around and, um, uh, and project that out into the environment, the cone gets bigger and bigger and bigger the further you're looking away, right? And so like, let's say if I'm looking at my iPhone, my, and I'm focused on that, my cone of vision is rather uh, small in diameter. It might be, um, well, I think, I think there's only ever a, a small little area that's actually in focus, and then it quickly becomes out of focus. Like if you look at text on a page or something, most just, just the couple of words that you're looking at are actually in focus, and the rest of it is kind of out of focus, right? So the peripheral vision starts like pretty quickly in our vision. And I think that explains why we glance around and look around at things a lot as we're, um, well, okay, I'm getting all over the place. So he, he saw this cone of vision as going out from the viewer and that, so objects, like let's say you have a chair that's close to you and a chair that's uh, 100 feet from you, that chair is the same shape. It's the same size in both instances it's just that the chair that's 100 feet away from us is occupying less space within a larger cone of vision than the chair that's in front of us. It's occupying, the cone of vision is smaller, and the chair is occupying more of that space. So, so hence, the objects that are the same size in reality appear to get smaller as they go away from us, and they come to a pinpoint on the on the horizon. So when you're standing outside at night, looking up at the sky, your cone of vision is arguably light years across. And so these galaxies that are themselves light years across, so the cone of vision might be hundreds of millions of light years across, and the galaxies, or the stars, they take up a very small area within that overall cone of vision, and so they appear to us as like a little pinprick of light in the, in the dark sky. And then going back to that 
cone of vision and how it relates to depth of field so that within space the depth of field is referred to as the area that's in focus and I believe how this works on our eyes is that our lenses the muscles around our lenses our irises they stretch the lens and compress it so when we're looking at something and focused further away from us the lens is stretched and it's thinner and and when we're looking at something that's close up the lens lens is more bunched up and it's thicker and that's how it maintains the focusing of light on the retina and so uh, this idea of a depth of field and kind of going back to lenses and how um, how artists have had this relationship with the lens through the centuries. Like David Hockney wrote this really great book called Secret Knowledge where he goes back and tries to prove or demonstrate how artists have used lenses in their work. And it's a fascinating book and he's got quite a few i believe he did a three-part series i want to say for the bbc these extended documentaries where he goes and demonstrates a lot of what he's studied it's just great and he actually um suggests that the artist vermeer used lenses in those paintings for a variety of reasons and part of the proof actually is is that he cites that like i, I don't know the guy's name but evidently Vermeer's one of his friends who ultimately ended up officiating his will was a lens maker so there's kind of there's kind of proof that the guy would have at least known about the technology and because um, like his best friend was like a lens maker maybe and so um, so yeah so artists have been like having these well I mean I think I think all through time artists have embraced the technology that's available. You know, I'm convinced that if Michelangelo had an iPhone and he was working on the Sistine Chapel, he would have had a camera on the, on the floor of the chapel and pointed at whatever he's painting at, and he would have been looking at his iPhone connected to it, saying, oh, yeah, rather than having it, you know, I, you know, well, although I think he made a scaffold over it. Well, anyway, he would have been using all this stuff, at least that's, my my feeling i think yeah because they were fascinated with technology of the day like da vinci and you know his notebooks are you know he's known for somebody who's trying to like advance science and advance engineering and advance all this stuff and um in his uh treatise on painting he actually has going back to this idea of a depth of field he has a chapter on aerial perspective and which i don't know actually i might be conflating depth of field and linear perspective or maybe they just kind of work together in ways see it's going back to the vermeer hockney i believe argues that the vermeer had to been using a, a lens and a camera obscura of sorts in the making of his paintings like he traced his compositions that were projected i think that's the that's what's theorized because and and that he observed the colors even in that way because there's in some of his paintings in the foreground the foreground is is out of focus 
and and it and it, it demonstrates like a depth of field that is taking place with, across like a basket with some bread in it like the foreground of the basket is out of focus but i don't know could the guy have been as sensitive to just being aware like i'm i'm looking at this microphone right now and the top of it is out of focus and i'm looking at the bottom like i mean maybe he was just aware of that like what's actually in focus is not that much space and so maybe he was just painting his peripheral vision and letting it be blurred or maybe he was using a lens which is probably he probably was using a lens anyway um but anyway yeah but going back to uh the light from these distant galaxies like traveling to us i guess one of the ways that the that the um that the Webb telescope is going to be so instrumental and who knows how it'll affect visual art you know once once we get an idea of how this thing works will it have an impact on the future of of visual art and and basic communication visually visual communication like the, the like the development of telescopes and lenses have had over the last since uh, since Ibn al Hatham in ten fifteen the way I've I read about how this web telescope is going to work is that the light has been traveling all of these millennia and it's currently just there at where the telescope will be and the telescope is sensitive enough to perceive it to pick it up and um, so essentially I read a thing saying that it's like if you have a photograph of a person I've heard it described as if you have a photograph of a person and you put that photograph in the drawer for 10 years you take it out you're no longer you're looking at you're you're not looking back in time because the light that is being reflected off of that photograph is happening in in the present but you're looking at the um the pattern of light that existed when the photograph was taken and since outer space is mostly uh, empty space the light traveling these hundreds of millions of years with us and towards us has remained largely uninterrupted and so the telescope will be able to read that light as it exists right on it and and form an image of it and it's interesting for me to think about how that light is traveling uninterrupted because the essence the essence of aerial perspective or atmospheric perspective da vinci called it aerial perspective is that when the light when light wave when white light when light is hitting things in our environment and um and bouncing around so let's say i'm looking out the window of my house and i see trees off in the distance and i see some in the foreground and then i see a couch in the room that i'm in and so i have like a foreground middle ground and background that i'm looking at and 
in the as things go back into space, contrast between hue value and chroma of objects like decreases at a relative rate going back in space. And I believe that's because as you go away from us, light is continually being scattered. So if light is hitting objects, it's bouncing off those objects in multiple ways. It doesn't just bounce right into our eyes. It's bouncing all over the place. And all objects reflect a certain amount of the entire spectrum. So even if you're looking at like a bright blue couch, that couch is is reflecting green and red wavelengths. It's, it's just that they're not noticeable to us. But those green and red wavelengths are combining with the blue wavelengths to make white or like a gray if it's not bright. And so as you go further out away from you uh, into expanding our cone of vision, and, and looking out into the landscape, you're seeing the effect of more objects reflecting things in all directions and those, those wavelengths all recombining back into white light. So therefore, it's almost like you're progressively looking through greater screens and, of, of white. And so the contrast between objects is diminishing because of that white is kind of equalizing it out. And, and until and so but if things are far enough away you'll actually see that light itself start to scatter blue wavelengths uh, dominantly and so hence like if you're looking at a mountain range it looks blue in the distance even though you know it's filled with like rocks that are brown and and green pine trees they'll just look it'll look like a blue mass this, this phenomenon is easy to see if you're standing outside looking down the street or standing on a field looking out in, across the grass or something like that in a park. You can see the trees in the distance aren't as contrasty as the one you're standing right next to, but they're all just oak trees. You know they're all the same. And the cone of vision is getting bigger, so the trees appear to be smaller because they're taking up less space in a larger field of vision. And the light that's being bounced off of all the objects between you and the trees are recombining back into white light, hence creating a screen that you're viewing the trees through so that the contrasts of hue, value, and chroma from light to shadow within those objects and all the objects around them become more unified or less contrasting. And hence, they seem further away. And going back to the Webb telescope, being able to accurately read the pattern of light that began traveling through space, I think maybe like billions of years ago. I, I got to look more how far back this light originated and that it'll be able to form an image of that. Yeah, I wonder if it... Well... We'll just have to see what that image is going to look like because it might not look like anything that we've ever seen before. Or I don't know. Hmm. Well, okay, maybe I could leave it at that. Thank you for listening, and go check out the NASA website with the Webb telescope on it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the color theory podcast on Facebook and Instagram. 
We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinski for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinski again for their production, consulting, and editing.